The chapters that we have not yet covered in the book of Exodus are chapter 31 and then 35 through 40. So that's that's kind of the plan today was to, to cover all of that. Uh, and you're thinking, I, one, I just saw your eyes get real wide. Whoa! Um, this would be the largest section of our study yet, all right? However, let me, let me say this. I am not going to cover all of it. Uh, in fact, much of what is in these chapters was already covered. When we read through the plans for the tabernacle and the plans for the priesthood in chapters 19 through 30, uh, I preached through uh, the tabernacle plans. Andy preached through the, the priesthood plans. All of that is is almost just repeated here. Uh, what we saw then in in uh, in chapters 19 through 30 was the plans that were given for how to build the tabernacle, how to establish the priesthood. What we're seeing here in these final chapters is the implementation of those plans. The tabernacle gets built here, and. It's just, it's almost like reading it again. All of those details that we saw in the plans, we're gonna, we read them again in the implementation of those plans. And the point of it is to note that Israel carried out the building of the tabernacle exactly the way that God had instructed them to do so. Okay? That's why it's like verbatim. It, th- th- that point is being made. Just as God had said, they did. They obeyed, all right? So that's why I'm not going to cover all of it again. It would take a long time to read through all of that, and and, and I think we have. But uh, I'll say this. There are a couple of noteworthy applications in these last chapters. Maybe someday we will come back and look at them and talk about them, but I'll just summarize them now. Uh, We see that in the aftermath of Israel's great moment of sin, remember they, they had... Worship. They had created and they had worshipped the golden calf. Uh, while God was on the mountain with Moses giving the instructions for how he would come and dwell with them in the tabernacle, how he was giving the law, they're down at the bottom of the mountain and they're just kind of going, all right, it's been, it's been a while. We haven't heard from Moses. We haven't heard from God. And they, they turned from him. They, they got weary and they just decided that they were going to make their own God. They committed a tremendous treason. They committed an adultery against God. And so that had just happened. And, and yet God then is merciful to them. He forgives them. Uh, he renews his covenant with them. And through all that, the result of all that, this great sin and then this great mercy is that there's been a change. The people are changed. There's been a change of heart among the people. And there's a renewed worship in them now. There's a renewed gratitude that comes out of their humility, having, having been humbled and yet finding the grace of God in that. And that, that causes them in these last chapters to give generously. That's one of the beautiful pictures we see. They, they just give towards the materials needed to build this uh, this tabernacle, they give generously, they give sacrificially. They also, again, they show a high degree of, of repentance and obedience through doing exactly what God said. That's why it's so detailed as we look at these last chapters. So they're following God's word. They're, they're giving out of gratitude. And, uh, and that's evidence that they were deeply affected by God's grace. God had, God had seen their, their worst sin and he had, he had forgiven them and they were, they were aware of that. They were affected by that. God had loved them anyway. And you see that response from them. 
And yet the primary motivation of the generosity and the obedience here is, is, is out of a desire now for them to really know God. They've experienced His love and His grace, and, and they want to know Him. Uh, that's what we talked about last week, knowing God. What does that look like? Mo- Moses says, show me your glory, God. We want to see you. You got to go with us. You got to be present with us, God. And, and the whole people, they have that desire and they know that in order for God to, to be in their midst, they've got to finish this tabernacle. They got to get this thing built because once the tabernacle's finished, God has said that his glory will come and, and reside with them. He will be in their midst now and forevermore. So that's their motivation. God, we want to know you. We want to see you. Let's get this thing done. And so let's pick up, and we're just going to look at chapter 40 uh, today in terms of actually spending time in the text. And let's be reminded of all that God had instructed them to do in order to build and to furnish the tabernacle. I'm going to put up on the screen a picture of the tabernacle that we had looked at several weeks back. Uh, If you want to just kind of glance down at the text and every now and again look back up at the picture, maybe it's kind of a helpful reminder of what's what's being done here, what's, what's being built. Chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy." You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest." You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases. He set up its frames. He put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and he put it into the ark. And he put the poles on the ark and he set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. And he arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and he put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. All right? Much of all of these chapters reads like that, by the way, detail after detail. And I I wanted you to hear it again and, and be reminded of those of you who were here when we, when we walked through it. And, and I'll, I'll walk through it a little bit again today, but, but a reminder of all of the elements of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings and all of the symbolism and the meaning behind them. And, and here it is. It's done. They built it. Moses, it says here, finished the work. He finished the work. This again is the culmination of everything we've read since chapter 19 and really the whole Exodus story. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know if you can get there after reading all this detail, but, but let's, let's just try to put yourselves in the shoes of the Israelites and think about all that they've experienced, all that they've gone through and the, the, the time that they've spent wandering in the desert at this point and, and certainly in slavery waiting for this moment. God promising that he would come and be with them. And Moses finishes the temple, and, and you get this picture of, of them all, the, the tabernacle, I should say. You get this picture of, of all of them now sort of like looking at it and, and with expectation going, here, here he comes. <laughs> We're going to see it. Just as God had promised, He's going to now come. We've, we've, we've prepared this place. It's been made holy. It's been anointed. He's going to come. And, and they've got to be asking this question. What's it going to be like to have God in the middle of us? Quite a moment. I want to read the rest of the chapter here, starting in verse 34, because here he comes. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. God's presence is now right there. We've come a long way. We've come a long way. We started this whole thing several months ago, what began ago, uh, generations ago for them in Egypt with a people who, who had no identity. This was a people who didn't even know the name of their own God. 
And yet now, here we see at the end of chapter 40, they are a people who are established as a people with a clear identity. They are the people of God's own choosing. This is God's own treasured possession, and they know his name. He's introduced himself to them. He's made it clear, I am Yahweh. They know his name, and not just knowing his name now, they they know his presence. His presence is among them, and he leads them. And he will stay with them to lead them into the land of promise. Everything that we've been looking at for months now in the book of Exodus is coming to its climax. Everything has been leading up to this. It's all pouring through a funnel right here at the end of chapter 40. God is with his people. It's an awesome thing. Now, I want, what I want to do is, 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 is I want us to, to, to grasp the fullness of that moment again by re-examining uh, all that we have traversed through over these last few months as we've gone through the book of Exodus. I want to take a few minutes to recap the three big, uh, big picture pointers, if you will, in the Exodus story that we've been trying to highlight over these last several months. And, 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 and I want you to get the theology behind what's happening here at the end. And then I want to end it by capping it off with some really encouraging and helpful application. All right. So let's begin this journey here. Let's, let's begin with the three big pointers. The first one was the, the tabernacle as the ancient garden and the future kingdom. Remember we talked about in the design of this tabernacle, in the symbolism of the building itself and the furnishings of it, there was a picture then. There was a, a, a pointer back to the garden of Eden. Everything that we read about its design echoes Eden. And what, what was going on in, in the garden of Eden? Well, Adam and Eve, we're there, right? They were created by God to, to walk with God, to exist with God in perfect fellowship. But because of their sin, they had been banished from the Garden of Eden. And ever since they have been banished from the Garden of Eden, we've, we've been longing to get back, right? We, we long to escape this broken, sin-sick world and live again in a right relationship with God, in a, in a right relationship with one another, in a renewed earth. That's the longing of every human heart. And so God shows up here and, and at Sinai and he gives an instruction here to build something that would, that would be a map back to Eden, a pointer for them back to that existence of God being with his people. And so we saw that in the materials of the tabernacle, it was made of gold and, and onyx and it reminds us of the material makeup of the Garden of Eden. And in, in the tabernacle, we see the lamp and the lampstand looks like a tree. And it's, it's a pointer back to the tree of life. We see the Ark of the Covenant in this tabernacle. It reminds us that, that, that we live under the reign and the rule of God here. The table is set. It's a place where we eat and we share fellowship with God and we share fellowship with one another. And most of all, God is there. Just like he was there with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now God again is present with his people. He is dwelling with mankind. It's a map back to Eden. And even though there are in the tabernacle reminders that our sin still separates us from a perfect relationship with our holy God. Remember, there are altars here. There are sacrifices that still need to be made for sin. There are curtains here that separate us from the, the presence of the holy God directly. There are cherubim 
on those curtains that guard us from the holy place. There's, there's reminders there that we're not there yet. Still, the tabernacle points us forward to God's intent to pursue his people. I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. He's pursuing his people. And one day he would provide the sacrifice needed to remove the curtain forever. To remove the separation. The mercy seat is there to, 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 to remind us that, that God's justice and mercy meet where sins are forgiven by the grace of God. And in the kingdom of God, the tree of life, the fellowship with God, the presence of his glory and every blessing of Eden will be restored. It's, it's a pointer back to Eden, but a pointer forward that this is what God is going to re- renew. And all this big picture symbolism finds its climax here in Exodus chapter 40 when the glory of God fills the tabernacle and his presence is with his people. This is the pointer that they've been waiting for. We we see the design of it, but God, it, it doesn't mean anything if you don't actually fill it. If we see you fill it, then we know. And they see it here. Everything's been leading up to this moment. That's the first pointer. The second pointer is the Exodus itself, the the whole story, not just the tabernacle scene, but the whole story as the salvation plan of God. If the tabernacle points to where God is taking his people, the Exodus story, the whole thing, points to how he'll get them there. The whole book is a picture of what salvation looks like, what deliverance looks like. And let's just examine that again. Remember where we've been. Here's, Here's the timeline. God pursues his people who are enslaved. They're enslaved to the sinful reign of this world, and he promises to set them free by his own power, by conquering the oppressor for them. And he does that through the judgment of sin, by the penalty of death, but he provides a sacrificial lamb to cover his people from that judgment. The unblemished lamb dies so that they do not have to. Then they're delivered by faith. As they trust in the mediator God provides in Moses to take them across the sea of divide into the promised land, they they step into the waters of judgment and burial by faith and they emerge on the other side in freedom. Their enemies, however are destroyed by that judgment. And then as they walk along the path to that final destination, they spend these years in the desert of Sinai. They are given daily provision. Manna from heaven every morning. They're given God's word. They're given his law to obey, to guide them. They suffer trials and setbacks. They They even sin, but through it all, God keeps his covenant promises to them. He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. And he leads them along the path by his spirit's presence in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He will take them all the way into that land flowing with milk and honey. Guys, that's the picture of salvation. That's exactly what God still does today. 
for each and every one of his people. He frees us from our bondage to sin by calling us out, by covering our sin, by the provision of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We are baptized into freedom by faith. We are given his word. We are given his spirit and promised to be led all the way home. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His covenant promises are certain. That's why I asked Chelsea to read earlier from Revelation chapter 21. That that's, that's where we're going. That's the covenant promise. We, we know that, that we'll, like John, we'll stand and say, we saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. We see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and hearing a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And again, we, we look here and this big picture symbolism finds its climax in Exodus chapter 40 when the glory of God fills the tabernacle and the presence of God is with his people. Everything has been leading to this moment. There's one more big picture that we see throughout the Exodus story. And it's this, it's, it's the picture of Moses as the mediator that points to Jesus. How many times over the last four and a half months did we, did we come to this text and we, we read something and, and we see the people have a, have a need. We see that, that God is holy over here and they're sinful over here. And there's, there's this wide gap. And we said over and over again, what do they need? They need a mediator. They need a go between. They, Moses needs to, to be provided by God to be that mediator between them and God so that, that the holiness of God doesn't destroy them, but he can lead them to peace and to safety. They need a mediator. We said that over and over and over again. And we see even here at the end of chapter 40, what does it say here? That, that last sentence in verse 33 as they, as the tabernacle is finished, Moses finished the work. And the picture of Moses throughout the Exodus story has always been to point forward to the ultimate mediator that the people of God need in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who, who like God here, the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among his people. Jesus finished the work on the cross paying the penalty for our sin, the thing that separated us from the presence of a holy God. He removed that, the ultimate sacrifice. And in Jesus, we see the glory of God face to face. When we look at him, it's the climax of Exodus chapter 40. God's glory present with his people through the mediator. Right? We've covered all of that. We've seen all of those big pictures, and, and, and again, they're all, they're all culminating here in, in Exodus chapter 40 and saying, this is where it all leads, to be in the presence of God. This is where your salvation leads. That's the big picture, the theology of Exodus. But let, me, let me bring it a little closer to home here. What about the application there's more to the story of Exodus than its theology. 
It's also its humanity. I hope you get the theology. I mean, that what, what, what we've seen through Exodus is an incredibly beautiful picture of the redemptive plan of God. And I hope you grab that, but, but what about the humanity of it? There are very real experiences, very real emotions and successes and failures. There are setbacks, there are victories, there are, there are, there are people. The people of Israel who are, who are living this out. They're not just seeing the theology being played out. They're walking this day by day and they're experiencing that. There's Moses and there's Aaron. There's Shifra and Pua. There's Jethro and Zipporah and all of the others. And, and, and this is important. All of those personal and corporate experiences also find their climax here in Exodus chapter 40. When the glory of God fills the tabernacle and the presence of God is with his people, everything that they've experienced has been leading up to this moment. Everything that's ever happened to them was for this moment. Everything that happened over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Everything in chapters 1 to 2, when, when babies were being killed by a wicked and vindictive Pharaoh, everything there was leading up to this moment. Everything in chapters 3 and 4, when, when God calls Moses from the middle of nowhere and, and promises him from a burning bush that he will use him to lead his people into freedom, out of slavery, all of that was for this moment. Everything in chapters 7 through 10, when God pours out his judgment through the 10 plagues and he shakes the foundations of society in Egypt, all of that was for this moment. When the people are grumbling, and afraid and starving. And they say, we, we just want to go back to Egypt. Things were better when we were in Egypt. And God provides for them manna from heaven every morning. It's for this moment. The meeting with God at Mount Sinai, the shaking of the ground, the lightning and the thunder, the fear and the awe, all for this moment. The giving of the law, the instructions for the tabernacle, for this moment. The mediatory work of Moses, the hours spent on his knees pleading with God, remember God, these are your people, you delivered them, don't forget them, God, you promised them all of that pleading and prayer for this moment. And even the sin that they committed the sin of, of making this false idol, this calf. They're being humbled in false worship so that they might learn to submit to God in right worship, the correction, the repentance, their obedience, all of these things. All of these things were purposed for and all of these things were preparation for this moment when God would descend upon them in glory and live in their presence. That they would see the face of God, the glory of God shining in that tabernacle and go, everything that we've been through, everything was worth it. It was leading to this. And church, that, that's the application for us. Listen, everything that's been happening in your life 
everything that's been happening in your life has been for that same moment when you and I will see God face to face. Every good thing and every trial you've ever experienced preparing you, purposed by God to lead you to that place of ultimate joy and peace and worship when you see him. Do you believe that? I know it's, 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 it's easy to believe that the good things prepare us for glory, but, but the hard and painful things? Yeah. The abusive home you endured. The friends who mistreated you, who spoke falsely about you, the, the romantic relationship that got away, the dreams of children you never had, or the wayward children who broke your heart, the job where you've been overlooked or mistreated, the churches that have hurt you, that have broken your hopes, the sickness, the disease that has diminished your quality of life or threatened to end it all too soon. All of that, church, all of that is preparation for that moment when we will lay down this temporary tent and we will be clothed in glory and we shall see God face to face and go, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And in that moment when you see him face to face, all that pain, all that disappointment, all that longing, all that waiting, all that wondering will seem as nothing compared to the satisfaction of knowing and having the presence of God. Everything is preparing us for what Paul calls an exceeding weight of glory. Do you believe that? Listen, There's no greater hope than that. That we will see God. That we will be in his presence. That we may even see him split the sky and descend for his church. And go, behold our God. Everything was leading up to this moment. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? Could you have that hope in the face of, of, of any trial or setback that this world could give you? Could you walk through the desert for 40 years in any way, shape, or form that things could go up and down and up and down and, and make you wait and make you wonder and make you experience pain and loss? Could you, could you, through all of that, have the hope to know that oh, one day it's the preparation for seeing and beholding and enjoying the face of God? Do you have that hope? Last week, I was uh, made aware of uh, a couple in a, in the church of a friend of mine uh, back in Tempe, Arizona. I'm from from Arizona, and the pastor of this church is a dear dear friend of mine. And there's a young couple in his church. There's actually three couples in their church that they sent off to Papua New Guinea as missionaries just a couple years ago to go and 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 find unreached people groups. Uh, learn their language and, and be able to preach the gospel to them. And and uh, one of the couples, uh, uh, Matt and Cameron Dodd are their names, uh, 
they're in their mid-30s. They've got four little children, and uh, they came back on furlough just to take care of a couple of, of just detail stuff, do some medical checkups and whatnot. Uh, they come back around September and October, and, uh, and this 36-year-old man, Matt Dodd, uh, goes in for his routine checkup, and he's got this little cough, and he's asking the doctor about this cough, and, and they determine that, that, you know, you have stage four lung cancer. And it's metastasized. It's in your brain. It's all over your body. This was a week ago Monday that they found this out. And, and, and the thought that, that, of course, is crossing their mind is, God, we, we've just gone. We've just taken our family. We've uprooted. We've gone to Papua New Guinea. We're, we're there to, to preach the gospel. We're seeing a work beginning to take shape there. And we come back for this news. Who would have expected this news? And, 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 and what kind of reaction would they have to hear this devastating news? You want to know what reaction they have? I want to play you a video. This is last Sunday, them standing up in front of their church and, and, and having an attitude like we've just talked about from Exodus chapter 40. If, if all of this is a preparation for us to see the glory of God, then it's worth it. This will be the best eight minutes you spend this week, if it'll work. Morning. First, I, would, I do just want to say uh, that we are doing well by God's grace. You know, we are, we are doing well. It, it's been a week, and um, there's so much to be thankful for, so much that we are praising God for, uh, so much grace that we see in this past week. Um, and, and we just want to say thanks to all of you guys. Uh, we've just seen the love of the body. We've seen the love of friends spring up in all of this, and we felt it. And uh, it has truly just been, it's been, a, it's been a, a week where we are grieving in this trial and yet rejoicing in the salvation of our God and just the, the love that we see. A, a few years ago in a season of our marriage, there was a time where Cam and I were, were talking about ways that we were afraid of dying. And Cameron brought up, I am afraid of dying death by orca whale. Yeah, it is appropriate to laugh at that statement. I mean, she is no longer in this place. I think it was technically plane crash in the ocean followed by death by orca whale. And to which my response as a husband was, listen, <laughs> if you died death by orca whale, that would clearly be the Lord's will for your life. <laughs> I mean, how, how can you argue with that, right? And I, it's, it's true. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm standing here. We've We've been four months in the country from Papua New Guinea, and to just hear the doctor say, hey, stage four lung cancer, how can we argue with this? You know, this, this is clearly the Lord's will for our life. When, when Job stood there and, you know, servant after servant came and was just giving him bad news, he clearly knew that that was the Lord's will for his life. And he just responded with, hey, naked I came in, you know, to this world, naked I'm going to return. You know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. This is God's will for our lives, and we recognize that. And, and I wanted to just share, like, a couple ways that we've seen just the goodness of God in these circumstances. Um, and I'm going to associate both of them with just a story from Papua New Guinea, because who doesn't like hearing about Papua New Guinea, right? Um, <coughs> first, when <coughs> one, one of the times when we were trying to find a village to move into and preach the gospel to, 
Zach and I were on one of the hardest hikes I had ever been on up to that point. We were hiking up to Yotwam, and um, and we we you know we left at three in the morning uh, from sea level. We hiked up to I think like five thousand feet. We hiked back down to maybe two thousand feet. Then we hiked back up to four thousand feet, and we got there at like six p.m. And I just laid down on the floor as soon as we got there and slept till six a.m. the next morning. And but I remember on this hike, as we're as we're hiking, um, I'm so exhausted. I, I I mean maybe one in the afternoon. I'm I'm so exhausted. I just am like, I can't do this, you know. And I sat down and I put my head in my hands, and I just thought, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I putting myself through all this pain and suffering? And the next morning, I opened the Bible and I reminded myself about the gospel. And I was just like, this is, this is why, you know? I mean, it's, it's worth it. You know, all the pain that I must suffer so that these people that we're meeting, if they just might hear about Jesus Christ, if they just might repent and believe and know the one true God who is infinitely merciful, I mean, man, this is any, anything that it costs me, any pain that I must suffer, I mean, this is all just totally worth it, you know? And, and seeming similarly in, in this situation, you know, we're just, uh, as, I, as I laid in bed this past week, you know, seemingly watching many things in my life pass away, maybe, you know? Um, I just thought, man, is this, is this the best plan? And, and my response was, yeah. I can confidently say this is, this is the best plan. I mean, God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely good. And, and this isn't what we were thinking. I mean, I don't think anybody was thinking this. But, I mean, this is God's plan. And, and, and we've just constantly been reminded how, just how undeserving we are of anything, you know? We came into this world with nothing. We're leaving with nothing. Um, uh, I mean, we have already received grace upon grace in this life. Uh, there, nobody promised 37 years of health, you know, there, I mean, 36 is great. And, um, and really our biggest problem is not cancer, right? I mean, our bigger problem by far is not cancer. Our biggest problem was my sin. My sin was my biggest problem. And that has been taken away. My biggest problem that I was that I was a slave of my sin. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I was under the wrath of God and God, in his grace and mercy, at the cross of Jesus Christ, took my wrath so that I could be his son, so that he could adopt me and declare me righteous. I mean, my, that, that problem is gone. So cancer is just little in comparison, very little in comparison. And so we just give glory to God, just the goodness that he's shown us in this. The, another story from Papua New Guinea. Um, we, we had some hard times in Papua New Guinea, you know, uh, hard situations, hard circumstances. And uh, I remember when Zach and Jeremy and I, when we were going through various things, I would just pray, God, please make this stop. <laughs> you know, this is just difficult. We had some hard times. And, um, and yet, after they were all over, Zach, Jeremy and I, we'd sit down, we'd talk about those times, and we remember them with such fondness. Because there was such dependence. There, there was so much just like seeking the Lord in those times. You know, that we just, 
lacked when it seems like everything was okay. Yeah, and so, so similarly in this situation, I mean, just just seeing, you know, I wake I wake up in, in the morning and I'm praying prayers that I've never prayed before. You know, like God, thank you for another day. Thank you, thank you, thank you for another day that I'm alive. You know, God, please help me to make it through this day. And I, just just seeing just the dependence upon the Lord that God has created in this situation that He has sovereignly and wisely and goodly given us is is again just uh, a kindness and a goodness of God. Uh, you know, sometimes I just think, uh, why can't I just why can't why can't it always be like this? You know, why can't I just wake up every morning and just be so thankful for another day and so dependent upon the Lord to help me make it through this day? But man, you know, sometimes we just need a trial to stir things up. We need a, a trial to help us love the Lord more. We need a, a trial to just stir up our love for each other, and 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 so we're thankful for that. And uh, if I have to be that guy, I'm okay with it. You know. I'm happy to be that guy so that if it leads us to love the Lord more and, and to love each other more and just be dependent upon God, and we're, we're really thankful for the opportunity to, you know, go through this. I don't know him, but I was watching that in my office early this week, and I was just bawling. Not, not because, I mean, partly because I, I can, I can empathize with the pain that they're feeling to find out what they're going through. You, you look at his wife's face and she's, she's holding it back, right? But, but more than that, I'm, I'm bawling because I'm thinking, man, what a beautiful hope. <laughs> Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? I mean, and I love what he said. He said, you know, my biggest problem was not my cancer. It was my sin. God's already taken care of that. And, and here we are in, in Exodus chapter 40. And, and you know what? The biggest problem that the, the Israelite people had was not the fact that they were roaming around in the desert. It's not the fact that they were, they were waiting to get into the promised land, that they had their, their ups and their downs, their trial, their slavery in Egypt. None of that ultimately was the biggest problem. The biggest problem that they had was that they were sinners. And chapter 32 revealed that to them when they, they, they just blatantly sinned. They, they committed this idolatry. They, they made this golden calf. They were, they were shown face to face just how adulterous of a people they were. And then, and yet in the midst of that, God forgave them. I don't think this could have happened without that. The, chapters 31 through 40 is, it's actually 19 through 40. It, it, there's this one blip. It, it's, it all flows together. Here's the, plans for the tabernacle. Here's the implementation of the tabernacle. God shows up. All of it's interrupted by this one chapter, 32, where in the middle of all that, there's just this sin. Why is that interrupted? Why does that happen there? It, it happens there because God has to reveal to them that, look, I'm a God who forgives. You got to see who you are. And when you see who you are and you see what kind of a God we have is a God of mercy and a God of grace, then, then our, our gratitude and our worship, it wells up in a way and our, our hope expands in a way that it would never have expanded before so that when, when we see God face to face, we know that moment, man, everything has been leading up to this and it's so good. Do you have that hope this morning? If you don't have that hope this morning, can I just tell you again that you're a sinner 
And your sin is deeper than you could ever know. But Jesus is a merciful Savior savior whose mercy and forgiveness and love for you is deeper still. And if living in this world is is full of ups and downs and chaos and trials and, and weeks like this where you just want to turn everything off and say, make the noise go away, if that just gets you weary... It should. It's a pointer to the fact that there's there's a lot of broken mess here. There's a lot of things that need to be renewed here. But we have a Savior who is renewing it all. And for those of us who have looked to Him and found Him to be the Savior that we need, one day we will see Him face to face and it will be so very good. So trust Him. Walk with him. Expect a desert between now and that day in, in many different ways, but know this, it's all leading up to this moment. You will see him face to face. And you'll see him in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You are so good, God. You've, you've just scratched at the biggest longing of our hearts this morning. Oh, to see you. Oh, to know you. Thank you that you sent your son that we could see you and know you now. Thank you that we can have that, that relationship with you. We can have the, the glory of your presence with us, Lord, that your spirit indwells us in a way that's far better than what these people experienced with your presence in the tabernacle. Because in Christ now, we are the tabernacle. And we're grateful for that. Lord, fill us with the hope and the expectation that there's more to come. There's more of you to be had. And help us, Lord, to to walk by faith between now and that great day when we will see, not with faith, but with eyes, renewed eyes, your glory. Help us to never forget that everything is leading up to that moment. That the, the life that we live is, is just, it's this journey along the redemptive arc that you have set forth from the beginning of time. And it has, it has a landing spot. It has an end date. And we will see you. We'll be with you forever on that day. No more sin. No more tears. No more cancer. No more brokenness. And yet somehow the, the walking through those things will have prepared us for a gratitude that we would never have known otherwise. It'll make that day all the more sweeter for us. So thank you for the trials. But Lord, come. Even so, Lord, we say come because we want to see you now. Sustain us until we do. And help us, Lord, not just again to cling to you, but to proclaim you until you come so that others might know the satisfaction of seeing and having you too. Thank you for the certainty of your promise and the hope that we have in Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.